Welcome to this episode of the Champlain Society podcast. My name is Patrice Dutille, and I'm talking from the Alan Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. The objective of this installment is to travel to New Brunswick in the 1880s. We'll dissect a few diary entries written by Lucy Everett Morrison. Her diary sheds light on a very interesting, if largely unknown, person. With me on the line from Victoria, B.C. is Gail Campbell, Professor Emerita of History at the University of New Brunswick. She's just published a new book entitled, I Wish to Keep a Record, 19th Century New Brunswick Women Diarists and Their World. This book is published at the University of Toronto Press. Gail, welcome to the mic and congratulations on your book. Tell me about it. What started you on your search of New Brunswick women diarists in the 19th century? Well, uh, in 1993, when Women's History Month was first established, I was asked to plan an event, and that year's theme was Women and Work. Because I thought that people should hear what women themselves had to say about their work, I went to the archives in search of women's diaries and letters. And predictably, I found farm women, I found a number of women teachers, and a couple of nurses. But I was most intrigued by a diarist who was more unusual, by the name of Lucy Everett Morrison, who kept diaries from 1869 through 1893. And, and those diaries, which might seem quite mundane to the uninitiated reader, just fascinated me. So we're going to read an excerpt. You're going to read an excerpt uh, that you've chosen from Wednesday, April 13th, 1881. Okay, the excerpt starts on, um, on April 13th, and I should mention that when she refers to George, that is one of her five male employees. When she refers to father, that's her husband. Oh, okay. Wednesday, 13th April, 1881. I had a very sore throat and chest, almost preventing me from speaking. At 5 a.m., got on a mustard plaster and pepper tea, which helped me amazingly. Getting in orders for Easter, six so far, amount $8.50. I filled boxes of peripherum and stocks, flocks, dromandae, etc., put them in hotbed. Sowed five saucers of tomato seed in place of those that did not come up. George dug all the parsnip barrel, open carnation pit. Four hotbeds filled with boxes, raked over and cleaned up rose bed. Easter was on the 17th of April that year. Saturday, 16 April. I must have picked a hundred roses today. Was rushed till 1.30 getting flowers off to St. John, then cleaned up, and was surprised to have left such a good show of bloom. I scarcely missed the six boxes sent away. Rained off and on all day. Warmer. George put dahlias and gladiolas in boxes. Father came home. Monday, 25 April. High wind from the north. George took all the verbenas out of hotbed and put them in small cold frame. I was in the house all afternoon. No callers. is full of green fly, scaly bug, and red spider. George has not been syringing it as he ought to have done. The ones I potted have never recovered. A number of fuchsias in bloom and lots of climbing roses got kitchen pump fixed. Tuesday, 26 April. Sunny morning, rainy afternoon. George planted potato onions, 
moved and set out some raspberry bushes, got ground ready for parsnips. Transplanting celery plants from saucers into boxes. Have 16 boxes not in hotbed, 84 in a box. Smoke verbenas in hotbed. Got order for $7 worth of cut flowers for Miss Burpee's wedding and an order for flowers for a government house ball on Thursday. Wednesday, 27 April. All the morning getting flowers ready to send to St. John for Miss Burpee's wedding. Thanks, Gail. Uh, what you're describing here is a, the diary of, 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 a, of, a, of a businesswoman. Absolutely. Who was Lucy Everett Morrison? Well, Lucy was born in 1823 in St. John, New Brunswick, one of five children. In 1846, she married John A. Morrison. He was a, an immigrant from Belfast, and he was the son of a Muslim man, manufacturer there. And he and his brother set up a dry goods business in St. John. But that business failed in 1859. And at that, in 1859, when it failed, that the family moved to Fredericton with five small sons, one a babe in arms. And there, John purchased a lumber mill. We don't have any indication that he has had experience in the lumber industry, but he purchased a lumber mill. When in 1872 that mill burnt for the second time, Lucy, what might be, and from her diary this suggests, a typical middle-class matron. She had six sons ranging in age from 11 to 20. And aside from John's mill workers, the couple employed a housekeeper to help with the indoor work, and in season, they also employed a man to help Lucy care for her extensive gardens. Uh, she had a wonderful house. People said that, that, that um, they would look over from the railway bridge and, and admire the gardens when, when the, plane, uh, the trains crossed the railway bridge. So that's the context for the story that the diary tells. In 1873, the year that John's mill was rebuilt for the second time, um, Lucy, at the age of 50, transformed her gardening hobby into a business, building a greenhouse that year and hiring a professional gardener to help her get established. Yeah, obviously she has a greenhouse. I mean, she's picking wonderful flowers in her mid-April. By, by 1881, she has two greenhouses, wow. but she starts in 1873 with one. Is she a successful businesswoman, Gail? Absolutely. Yeah. John, John's business continues to be precarious, as the lumber business was. Lucy never looked back. She had a few setbacks here and there, but um, people always brought flowers. Wow. So when the excerpt was written, she was 57. Mm -hmm. her, her diary does also provide insight into who she was on quite another level. So she was this successful businesswoman, but yes. she was also a mother, a daughter, a sister, a wife. And, and she came from a close-knit family. So you get little gems in her diary of, of her personal life. So that same year that the diary is written in the fall, she discovered a lump in her breast, and she immediately turned to her sisters for support. And on the advice and, and urging of one of her sisters, she went to St. John to consult a doctor there. What the doctors say was, stop all work. That didn't happen. She wouldn't, she wouldn't stop? No, no. She recovered? She did. Well, she lived another 10 years, and there's no indication that she had particular, you know, she did certainly didn't have surgery. So she did recover, yes. Yeah. Um, so 
Do you have any other impressions of this woman? Are there other? Did you find photographs uh, as a historian? How do you? How did you approach this this person? Well, I I was quite fascinated by her, and, and um, her her granddaughter who passed the diaries on to another to a niece said, "Oh, it's all about her garden." But her niece managed to get a lot of genealogical information from it. And you can get a lot of information from it. Her, her, both her sisters were childless, which we can find from the census. I, I did demography, so I found certainly the family in the census, mm-hmm. um, and and also from the di- mixing out with the diary. Four of her six sons made their careers and businesses established by their maternal uncles. Another son inherited the business, of course. Um, but but you can get that kind of information from the diary. But I gave a talk at the local historical society and met many members of the family who came. And I did get pictures. The the archives has a couple of pictures of her Hmm. um, garden, but I I got some pictures from them and some further information from them, too. And they were quite interested that one could get this much information from her diary in terms of about her business. I get the impression you can actually use this diary as a prism for for different different things. I mean, you get a sense of what the local economy was like? Absolutely, yeah. She she suffers the highs and the lows. There's obviously a market for her flowers. There are different occasions for for the the marketing of flowers. How far does she ship? Well, she ships from Fredericton to St. John regularly mm. and sometimes to Chatham. So That tells us something about the, the, the quality of the roads, the quality of the transportation system? Ab- absolutely. And it tells what about what about her you, you mentioned uh, George, one of her workers. Uh, do you get a sense of how they were paid or I mean it must have been rather unusual for these men to be working for a woman in early eighteen eighty one. Well I I don't know. So often she employed in before the lumber mill started. She would employ sometimes some of the men from the lumber mill that wouldn't be employed until mm-hmm. the mill actually started working. So I I think that they were quite happy to get that that job. And and we never had any. I I didn't have any indication that she didn't get along or had problems with any of the men who worked for her. She employed them at various levels, and George was at fairly high level. When she she employed the professional gardener that she brought in to to help establish her garden had worked for a had been brought over from England to work for a druggist in town. First of all, and then he had gone to Boston, and they went after him in Boston. So obviously, they knew of him, and he returned and helped her establish that garden, and then he established his own business. So he stayed with her for a year and a half, mm. went and established his own business, and that is well known. His business is known, hers is not, and yet there's a lot of back and forth in yeah. movement in, in the um, exchange of plants. So she often refers in her diary to giving bib plants when some of his weren't doing well, and... and him giving, getting plants from him when mm-hmm. hers, certain of hers weren't doing well. So I think that she had a business relationship with a lot of men, and there isn't any indication that um, there's any 
Any you know, problem with that? Problem with that. Which is very, again, giving you some insight into the relationship between uh, men and women again at that yep. period in New Brunswick. Does, Gail, does the, the farm still stand? Is it still there? No. 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 Um, when I first went to New Brunswick in the early 1980s, her, the house still stood and it was a, an inn. Oh, okay. But now that's taken down and they're all houses along the river. Now, let's get back to uh, this diary um, as, a, as a document. Why, why do you think she kept this diary for so long? I mean, you're talking about uh, a long, long time here, 20 mm-hmm. years? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 19th century women and men, you know, they chose to keep diaries for a variety of reasons. And like many male diarists, Lucy really was mainly keeping a record of her work. So her personal life does keep it, but it's her work, in her case, her garden. And she'd use the same diary for four or five years. So internal evidence suggests that she consulted her diary about when she planted things each year. Mm. Um, she noticed when knew when plants matured, when they were harvested. So she's aware of seasonal fluctuations as well as seasonal patterns and, and knew what to expect in her garden. So if you look at her diary, um, there'll be you know the, the entry for 25 April. 1880, and then right below that, the entry for 25 April 1881, and below that, the for 1882. So her diaries are pocket diaries, but they're, oh, the size of one's hand, really. So each day had a, you know, it would be April 20th, and then she would put in the year. She could generally use them for That's fascinating. Did you have good penmanship? She had, she's very readable, <laughs> yes. Very readable. Although she didn't... Um, you know, she often spelled some of the plant names differently. Well, and that gives you quite, I mean, there's a few tongue twisters in that, uh, That's in right. that entry. That's right. What surprised you about this diary? I mean, again, for looking at it over 20-odd years, what, 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 what surprised you about it? Really, the extent and scope of her business and mm-hmm. how it, it evolved really quite rapidly. Before that, she would, before she had her greenhouse, she would overwinter plants in the house for her own purposes for her garden and she did win some prizes at fairs etc but after she started her business she didn't really go much for fairs but really it's the extent and scope like plants and fruits and flowers supplied both to Fredericton and St. John thousands of celery plants each spring and thousands of heads of celery professionally packed in sand for preservation each autumn wow did she make a lot of money hard to say because we don't have her account oh it's too bad um, but but she certainly was well known, and a lot of people uh, bought plants from her. A lot of the major or wealthier people in town bought plants from her. So I think that she was quite successful. And if if she sold to a business that was selling plants, maybe on the side, a lot of surprisingly a lot of drugstores sold plants on the side, mm. and and they weren't selling enough. She would just not sell to them anymore. She'd find someone else to sell to. I see that you've done a lot of work on political culture. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering what these, I mean, as, as someone who's interested in political culture, when you're looking at these diaries, can you draw on them to, to give us a, a more colored picture of what people in New Brunswick in the early 1880s were thinking politically? Well, certainly I do that in, in the book. I have a chapter on, on um women in politics, and I have another chapter on, on just the changing 
era of the 19th century. Um, Lucy's diary doesn't tell me a lot about politics, so it does tell me what mayoral, mayoral candidates they um, supported. Um, but, but in terms of politics, the only real... We know when sessions of the legislature were in... She kept tabs were going them. on because, because she sold buttonholes. Uh. <laughs> and hundreds of buttonholes, they'd take them off when the legislature was, was sitting for the legislators to wear. Well, what's going on in New Brunswick in those days, in the early 1880s? Well, the context for that, of course, goes, goes back quite a lot further. Um, you know, the, by, by, I'm interested in demography, so if we look at the span of, of Lucy's life, 1823 to 93, it's a period of really profound change in New Brunswick. We have, at the beginning, very beginning of the 19th century, we just have the, the loyalists being the largest proportion of settler society. But, of course, not all loyalists were American-born. A good many of dismanded soldiers who settled along the shores of New Brunswick rivers were British-born. But by the time she was born, there's the, the timber trade, and that's still going on in the 1880s, but, but big changes in the timber and lumber trade um, happened during that period. So... The timber trade takes off when just in the period before she was born, British immigration just surpasses loyalist immigration. By the time she married, so 1840s and 50s, the majority of the population in New Brunswick were like Lucy, New Brunswick-born. And um, there's not much arable land in New Brunswick, really. So Mm -hmm. even though... Farming remains the mainstay in New Brunswick. If you look at New Brunswick censuses from the mid-19th century on, there's a lot of occupational pluralism in New Brunswick. So in, in getting into the lumber industry, her husband is you know, doing a significant thing that's a very important industry in, in New Brunswick. And the fact that he's able to rebuild his mill suggests how successful that is during that period. A confederation, of course, St. John, the, the city that she grew up in, was surpassed only in population by Montreal and Quebec. It's the third largest city in the Dominion. Really? Yes, the, the mighty St. John River to the north and the Bay of Fundy to the south really gives the access to this newer city, uh, access to a hinterland that Halifax lacked because it doesn't have a river going in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so until Confederation, really, New Brunswick faced resolutely seaward. The coasting trade meant that ties with New England are much stronger than ties with central Canada. And, of course, the lumber industry spawned the shipbuilding industry. That's world-renowned. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that's going down in, by 1880s because of the fact that we have steamships and we're moving from sail to, to steam and that, that hurts the lumber trade. Mm. And choosing Halifax as the major terminus for the Intercolonial Railway and disastrous fire in St. John in 1877 hurt, hurt the city. But St. John is a really strong manufacturing base. So in the 1880s, if we look at the 1880s, we have Sir Johnny MacDonald's national policy coming mm. to fruition. Mm. 
mm-hmm. and giving manufacturing a further boost, not only to St. John, but to a number of other urban centers in the province. And, and that's not surprising, perhaps, because, of course, the architect of that national policy is Leonard Tilly, a New Brunswicker. Indeed, indeed. So the province, the province also boasted a number of cultural institutions, three universities by that time. So it's... It's, it's a happening place. Doing doing fairly well, but at, that, at the same time, we do have this um, downward spiral with with the shipbuilding. Right, right. Industry. Now, tell me, um, your your book covers a number of New Brunswick women um, diarists. Was there something in particular that made Lucy so much more interesting to you? Yes, I well. All of the diaries are interesting in their own way, but what makes Lucy's diary really fascinating to me is that it lets us get beneath the economy we know about. Mm-hmm. It gives us insight into the, the nature and the extent of the hidden economy that we don't read about in textbooks. Right. Um, thriving businesses like Lucy's that left no record, mm-hmm. and, and partly because they were run by women, but, but there's more to it than that. Because Lucy Morrison regularly employed, at the height of her business anyway, at least six men mm. and two or three women often. She bought from and sold to businesses as well as to individuals. But but her diary, as I said, we don't have her, her accounts. Her diary is the only record we have of her business. And yet to understand really the way society functions and what you were suggesting before, really the day-to-day experience of how society functions. And I, I would say the way it still functions, we really need to take into account that hidden aspect of the economy and to recognize we're the really contributions of businesses really, like her. We're really lucky she left a diary like this, aren't we? It, I think so. I think, I think it's a gem. Yeah. I mean, it gives us, I mean, we, where, where we can't use statistics because they're not there or uh, we can't really trace out the relationships, the dynamics of business, the networks that have been created, the local networks that were created. This kind of diary gives us an insight into those realities. It, it does. And, and it's possible to, to look at who she's selling to and uh, the businesses at least mm. and find out a little bit more about them as a result of the fact that we know how much she's sending them. It's, is it fair to say that it's not a very personal diary? You, you mentioned her, the lump in her breast, but I mean, otherwise, is there a lot of personal insight? Does she talk about her husband? Does she complain about her husband or anybody no. like that? It's very much of a business person, isn't she? Every, every once in a while, there's a complaint about one thing or another, but sometimes it's about, you know, something not done as George not stretching the... <laughs> um, sometimes she says, you know, never do this again or never do that again in terms of what she's done to mm-hmm. her... In, in her business, just to remind herself. There's one, one incident that I use in, in the book, and, but there are a few more of this, when um, the business disappears for, for this almost week when they almost lose their first grand... Well, it's not their first grandson. They lost the first grandchild. They have the second grandchild a year and a half later, and almost everything stops as they focus on making this grandchild live. There's, and, and there's not a lot of emotion that's, that's, you know, overt in it. There's just who sat with him every night, what they did. Mm. The doctor at one stage comes and says, basically, he's not going to live. And suddenly, 
they set up a steam around him and and man the steam frame day and night and he improves and he does live and but but for a little bit of time you see the families coming together you see father and her spending the night you see father and and her daughter-in-law's um, mother spending the night you see her one of her sons helping the other son set up the the steam um, apparatus etc and then He's all right again, and we're right back to her. It's a, very, it's a very human story. Yeah. Um, I, I suspect that diaries today would be very different. I, I, do you keep a diary, Gail? I don't. I keep, <laughs> aside from a tiny appointment book, I do not myself keep a diary. I mean, it, it does say something about these particular people. Not everybody kept diaries. Uh, special people keep diaries. I certainly don't. Um, th- th- this is a, a remarkable feat unto itself. People who keep diaries and who write it, who write it for personal purposes. I mean, there was no intention to that. That 140 years later, a book would be published about her diary, That's right. would there? That's right. No. I mean, it's a very personal, very uh, intimate I kind think, of. I, I think it is a personal thing to do, and. And some are intimate and some are not. And talking to people about my research, I, I've really been surprised to discover just how many people do keep diaries yes. of one kind and another. You think diaries and today are different, would, would, will, be, will be different than they were 140 years ago? Maybe, but it's hard to say. People mm. think that diaries should be confidants or confessional kinds of, diary, of, of books. Mm. And yet, if you talk to people who keep them, there, there is still the whole range I once had a, asked a group of students, we studied, looked at diaries in a, in a little section of a course, and I said, I want you to keep a diary the week before, and, and that diary will never be read by anyone. <laughs> it's your diary. Just keep it, because we're going to talk about the nature of diaries. And when we got there, some of the young women read some of the diaries, and they said, oh, you know, they were disappointed because they weren't confident. Oh, really? diaries. And some others Women, young women as well as young men said, well, it's kind of, that's the kind of diary mine was. <laughs> so I, I think that it is a really personal thing. And my suspicion is, just as you sometimes get some letters that say, burn this, and of course someone didn't burn them, but they kept them, but that's why we have them. Thank goodness. I think diaries may be the same thing. I think that perhaps as many people kept diaries as confidants then as now, but those weren't the ones that survived. Right. Families. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. But that's my speculation. Yes. Um, so we, we owe a lot to uh, Lucy, don't we? I mean, she's giving us something that uh, that very few other people uh, have provided. I do think we owe a lot to Lucy, and I think we owe a lot to her family who preserved those diaries and decided to mm. give them to the Provincial Archives of New Brunswick, which is where they are deposited. Well, let's hope that people who are listening to this will uh, find diaries in their attic and also do the same thing and donate them to their local archives. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for taking the time today, Gail. Congratulations on your book. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Gail Campbell talking about Lucy Everett Morrison, one of the 28 diarists who are featured in her new book entitled I Wish to Keep a Record, 19th Century New Brunswick Women Diarists and Their World, and it's published at the University of Toronto Press. I want to remind our listeners that the document we've just discussed will be available on the Champlain Society website. Please visit us at www.champlainsociety.ca. 
This is the Champlain Society podcast. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University. It was produced by Sabrina Birch, Cindy Long, and Vince Piet. Thank you all, and see you next time. <laughs>